electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. I'm Becky Quick, and here's what's ahead today. When will Royal Caribbean get back to sea? And will vaccinations be required to get on board? The CEO, Richard Fain, will join us for an exclusive interview coming up straight ahead. Plus, rising mortgage rates, high home prices, and tight supply. We're going to look at the potential impact on the spring housing market. Also, large Bitcoin investors trim their holdings. Activist investors take aim at Kohl's and... Is Instacart eyeing robot warehouses? That's all coming up ahead in the rapid fire segment. But we begin with the markets this hour and Dom Chu. Dom, good afternoon. Good to see you. Good afternoon, Becky. Good to see you, too. It feels like not so long ago we were all hanging out on Squawk Box, but it is the afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern time here. And the markets right now, believe it or not, are at record, not record, highs of the day, I should say. A hundred point gain for the Dow Industrials. It doesn't seem like a lot, but at the lows, we were down roughly 208 points, so a decent-sized comeback for the Dow Industrials. The S&P, though, is still down about one-third of 1%, 3894 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite, 13670 the underperformer off 1.5% on the day. A big story that continues to play out in the markets right now from the macro big-picture side of things is what's happening with interest rates. They are on the rise again today, 1.358%, just a hair below the highest levels that we've seen over the course of the last year. You'd have to go all the way back. The last year to find this level just about 1.4 percent. So keep an eye on those 10-year Treasury note yields. And because of interest rates, financials and banks continue to be in focus, although this time because of a deal. M&T Bank, a Buffalo bank, Buffalo, Buffalo, New York-based regional bank, is buying Bridgeport, Connecticut-based People's United Bank. Now, those stocks have taken a bit of a decent divergence here over the year, but M&T Bank is up roughly 2.7 percent today. And we're talking 14 percent gains on the day so far for People's United. But a big deal in terms of regional banking, it could just be the latest step in some bank consolidation that we're seeing. So keep an eye on interest rates and those regional banks for sure. Becky, I'll send things back over to you. Tom, when we were talking earlier this morning, it was Boeing, Boeing shares that were really dragging down the Dow. That's when we were looking at the Dow down by 200 points or so. They've really turned around this morning, though. They have been. And and just this idea right now that you are seeing a little bit of that mentality of people trying to buy things on pullbacks, especially in some of those blue chip names. It might signal the reason why you're seeing Boeing up about a half a percent on the day. And by the way, over the course of just the day, you see down near almost $209 per share up to where we are right now. So, again, Boeing, a big reason why. But again, it could be that mentality, Becky, that we've seen over the last several months here. But people buying those blue chip value oriented names, perhaps Boeing is one of those on the shopping list today, Becky. (laughs) I knew I could throw anything at you. You've got the charts right up to run with that. Dom, you're the best. Thank you. Thanks, Becky. See you soon. 
As Don was mentioning, those bond yields, we've been watching those very closely, especially the 10-year. They've been rising for some time, and the market continues to set new highs. But now with the 10-year yield hitting its highest level in almost a year, is this going to start to hurt stocks? That's a big question today. Joining us right now to answer that are Kim Forrest, the chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners. Also, David Wagner, portfolio manager at Aptus Capital Advisors. And Kim, I'm going to start with you. We've been looking at these interest rates, and it's hard to say interest rates just below 1.4% you look at the tenure are a real sign for concern, but we've moved pretty quickly. What are you thinking when you see this? Sure. Well, I think um, especially the tenure, that um, is the number that we all discount those cash flows at, right? So the higher that goes, the lower that we should be looking at uh, accepting uh, the PE. So that's going to lower the multiple, right? But as you point out, we're moving fast, but it's still a very, very low number. So I think we're not going to have uh, a uh, tapered tantrum yet, or whatever that was. And um, so I think it's okay right now, but it's something that investors do have to keep an eye on. David, what are you thinking when we watch that? I mean, we're still looking at the 10-year below the rate of inflation, which is close to 1.4%, but there are people starting to ask about whether inflation is going to pick up quickly. Are you in that camp? Yeah, I think Kim is really spot on with what we're seeing. You know, it's really just a changing in the dynamic of the market. And the bond people are really tend to be the smartest people in the room. So we're really just starting to see some type of capitulation from them. In my mind, you know, equities were maybe a little ahead of themselves. So you're really just seeing some type of normalization in the yield curve. I mean, this happens every single economic cycle here. You know, I wouldn't really start to worry about equities until maybe you start to see the tenure actually get above the S&P 500 dividend yield of 1.5%. And like Kim said, that could really be a little mm-hmm. bit of a headwind actually for the higher valued stocks in this market that have had a huge run, especially last year. Yeah, Kim, that's the big question. Look, it's probably not a big deal for the economy, not too much to hamper or slow things down, although I guess you could potentially claim that it's going to make housing prices uh, more expensive, especially as you get into the spring season. But really, when you look at this, it's a a question for the Fed, too. Will the Fed react if you see interest rates start to pick up like this? I think they will. I think um, looking globally, we live in a low interest rate environment, and I think the Fed wisely... Um, knock down those rates whenever we were getting up to that magical 3%. And I think they have an eye on the global uh, interest rate environment, and that's what we're working with. So it's low interest rate environment for as long as the eye can see. Hey, David, there's an interesting segment that you like. It's the REITs, the Real Estate Investment Trust. I have to say, driving around New York City over the weekend and seeing how many things were shut down, how much retail space was open and available, that comes as a little bit of a surprise. Explain your thinking behind this. Yeah, you know, we are still kind of uh, proactive on home builders as a whole. But where we're actually starting to see a lot more value is in this REIT space. If you just look at performance, only 10% of REITs right now are trading above their pre-COVID high. If you look at and try to compare that actually to more of the cyclicals that have really started to run after vaccine day, you're getting more 50 to 60% of those names trading above those pre-COVID highs. And you think of the underlying fundamentals of some of these cyclical REITs, especially on maybe some of the smaller cap side, you know, they're really exposed to those exact same industries that have been running, you know, your restaurants, your retail, your storefront. So we just see a really a relative value uh, pair trade here that could be very beneficial for REITs moving forward, even if interest rates start to rise. You know, REITs aren't, aren't monolithic in a way. You know, they benefit from a uh, booming economy, a stronger economic growth. And that's something that we think we're going to be seeing here in the near future. 
Hey, Kim, you say you still like the technology names, names like Intel and Micron, but you also like Urban Outfitters. And I, I'm trying to figure out what the thought process is behind that. The, the tech names, I think I understand a little better. What, what sure. about Urban Outfitters makes you so positive right now? So a couple of reasons. They have had uh, a long history of being able to be at the forefront of trends. And as we get out and um, out of COVID, we're going to get out of the house. And I don't think we want to wear what we've been wearing. I mean, nobody does, right? So I think they have a really good shot for getting uh, our clothing dollars. But they also do experiential selling. Their stores are great just to kind of mull around and pick things up and find stuff you never knew you needed. And I think that um, people are going to want to just be out. And uh, I think they do that so well. Kim, David, want to thank you guys both for being here today. It's really good talking to you. And by the way, while stocks are mixed today, long-term market, market strategist Sam Stovall is warning that there are several indicators that are pointing to a coming correction. Yeah, it sounds a little scary. If you want to hear more about it, you can head to CNBC.com pro to read more about it. In the meantime, let's turn to Washington. The Biden administration is announcing changes to the PPP program to better target aid to small businesses. Kate Rogers joins me right now. She's got the latest on this. Kate, good afternoon. Hey, Becky, great to see you. The administration making several important changes to the program to increase access for smaller companies that may have been excluded from aid last year. The efforts are tailored to reach America's smallest businesses and those owned by minority entrepreneurs. That's a pledge that President Biden made when taking office. First, starting on Wednesday, there's going to be a two-week window for businesses with 20 employees or fewer to exclusively apply for PPP to ensure that they're not being crowded out by larger companies. There's also going to be changes to how much aid the self-employed and sole proprietors can be eligible for in this round. That's an important tweak, as about 70% of sole proprietorships are owned by women and minorities. There will also be $1 billion set aside for sole proprietors in low and moderate income areas. Those who have non-fraud-related prior felony arrest or convictions will be able to access the PPP, as will those who are delinquent on their federal student loans. Finally, legal U.S. residents who are not citizens like green card holders will be able to apply for aid with these changes. Administration officials, like many Main Street advocates, have argued that PPP alone won't be enough to save small businesses, urging Congress to pass the American Rescue Plan, which has about $60 billion in aid for struggling companies. In this latest PPP round, $284 billion was allocated and about $144 billion remains. A challenge, though, Becky, will be outreach to businesses that may have been turned away or missed out on aid to get them to come back and apply as these changes take place. Back over to you. Hey, Kate, I have a question for you. And this is something that I haven't really been able to get straight as I've been hearing some of this reporting through the day. I know that this time around, you have to say that you were hurt um, by at least something like 25 percent taking a hit to your revenue uh, year over year. Is that this year over last year? Are we talking last year over the year before? Because pretty soon you're going to be coming up against the comps when you were already in COVID. So you may have been hurt pretty hard by March of 2019. And if you're doing a year later, I don't know that it's going to show 25 percent. 
those are for the second drop PPP loans. You had to have shown that 25% decline uh, from current times to pre-COVID times. So that's something that a lot of people wanted to see included to make sure that truly struggling small businesses were eligible and were the ones that wound up getting this aid. The good news, Becky, is that we're seeing smaller companies going particularly for first draw loans. We got some new data this morning that showed first draw loan applications in this now third round of PPP were average loan size of about $21,000. So that means really small companies are actually going for aid this time around, which is important. Second draw PPP loans a little bit higher, closer to about $100,000 in average loan size. Mm, That's good to hear. Kate, it's good to see you. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Thanks. When we come back, shares of Royal Caribbean surging on some bullish comments by the CEO, Richard Fain. He will join us live and talk more about what he's been saying that has investors so excited. We'll also talk about whether vaccines will be a requirement to cruise. Plus, large Bitcoin investors trimming their holdings while retail investor demand is picking up. We're going to look at that battle between Wall Street and Main Street, try and figure out who's right. Bitcoin, by the way, down more than 10% today after hitting another record high over the weekend. The exchange is back. We'll see you in two minutes. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Good to see you. Shares of Royal Caribbean surging despite reporting a billion-dollar-plus loss for the fourth quarter. CEO Richard Fain is going to join us in just a moment. But first, Seema Modi joins us with a closer look at what's behind those gains. Seema, good to see you. Good to see you, Becky. Well, those cruise travelers, they tend to be a very loyal bunch. As we've seen in future bookings on the earnings call, Royal Caribbean did say it's already seeing an increase in bookings as more older Americans get vaccinated. Now, with the cruise industry halted for nearly a year, Royal has had to fight to stay afloat, raising over $9 billion in debt and equity, and most recently selling its Zamara Cruise Line to private equity firm Sycamore Partners. Let's bring in the Royal Caribbean CEO, Richard Fain, for more on the path forward. Richard, welcome back. Hi, Seema. Thank you. Nice to be back. Good to have you on. Uh, Let's talk a bit more about the increase in bookings that you've seen over the last five weeks. Would you say they're primarily Americans over the age of 65? I guess I'm just trying to understand the correlation between getting vaccinated and booking a cruise. Well, you know, we're still in such a a period of uncertainty, and there's still so much turmoil. Um, And we're trying to read all the statistics we can. And, of course, they're all over the place. 
And I think the specifics that you were referring to was um, that on the call, Jason Liberty said that uh, bookings were up the, at the current pace, 30% higher than they were at November, December of last year. Remember, November, December was a terrible time. And so what you're seeing is uh, enthusiasm about the pace of the vaccine coming out. Older people um, who are getting the vaccine earlier, people over 65. So some of the things that we thought was going to happen aren't happening. They're, they're, they're better than we thought. We really thought older people would be more cautious. Turns out they want to get out of the house, too. We thought that um, almost everybody was going to be a, an experienced cruiser because they're the ones that understood cruising and were anxious to come back. Right. And yet in our in our Singapore operation, 80 percent of our guests have been first timers. So we're getting a lot of surprising data as things come out, and it's mostly positive. But all the demand in the world is no help, Richard. If the industry is not given the clearance from the CDC, where do discussions stand with the Biden administration and the CDC on, on getting back to see? What, what's the holdup? Why is it taking so long? Well, I think, you know, we're just coming, now it's coming down, but we just were in the midst of a huge surge, uh, a real spike over the end of last year, Taking, taking prevalence to a very high level, and nobody was going to suggest that we start operating in that kind of environment. But as that's coming down, as the numbers get better, as the prevalence in societies gets better, as the vaccine gets out there more, I think that's when people will, that's when we can start having serious conversations to restart. But Richard, has, already discussing has, the, has the CDC said what percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated once they'll loosen restrictions or where the infection rate needs to be? No, I think the CDC and we ourselves and our healthy sale panel would say no one statistic is the determining factor. You look at all of it. You look at what we can do to protect people, what the vaccine does, what the testing does, and those together. And I think we're getting closer to the time when those things are working together. But there is no, unfortunately, there's no one magic threshold that says now's the day. If we reach this point, we can go. But we are coming, and it's one of the points I made on the call, that we are starting up in, in Singapore and the Canaries and et cetera. Hey, Richard, I'm not surprised to hear people who have been vaccinated wanting to go ahead and sign up and, and get back out. I, I can't wait to get a vaccination. I'd love to get back out once that happens. But I think back to what was happening with the cruise lines when this first broke out and you had ships that couldn't come back in. No nation wanted you to dock on their shores because you had infected passengers on board. Will every passenger on board have to be vaccinated? Or if I sign up, am I going to risk the idea that I'm going to get stuck out there again if somebody else who didn't get vaccinated comes down with coronavirus? Well, I'm glad you raised that because it's an important point. People aren't so much worried about getting sick on a ship. They're worried that somebody else gets sick and that that destroys their whole vacation, that they can't be isolated. And that's why the protocols that we've come up with, a big focus of them is how do we isolate cases when we have a case? Because there will be cases on a ship, just as there are always cases in society. Our job is to make sure that it stays cases and doesn't become an outbreak. And I think that's where the healthy sale panel has come from. That's a lot of our discussion with the with the CDC and others. Um, and that's and the vaccines are a big part of that.
And that seems to be what's fueling the stock now up about 13 percent on the day. You've also been successful in raising a, a, wow. a lot of debt and equity, Richard, over nine billion over the past year. But how many more times can you go back to the debt market, uh, you know, if you're not able to get to see this summer? Um, what else can you so do? I think I, I think what we have said is we actually we said on the call is that we have a there are a lot of things we can do. We have a quiver of, of things full of of actions we could take if we needed. But we have been methodical about this and always looking fairly far out so that we're not dealing with an imminent issue. We always want to be dealing with if something goes wrong, we have time to fix it. And in this case, we've built up enough of our liquidity. We've built up enough of our ammunition so that we have the the luxury of not having to deal with the crisis, but to gradually improve our liquidity, our financial health, because we want to get back to investment grade uh, as quickly as we can. And your liquidity position much stronger than what was uh, anticipated. Richard, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Richard Fain, CEO of Royal Caribbean. Thank Seema, you. thanks for having me back. Thanks, Seema, and thanks to Richard as well. When we come back, the recent spike in the 10-year pushing mortgage rates higher. We're going to look at what impact that could have on the spring housing market. Plus, from art to classic cars to handbags and sneakers, we're going to check out the rise of art-secured loans and talk about the risks that come with it. That's ahead. The exchange will be back after this quick break. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're watching stocks right now, and they are mixed. If you check things out, you'll see that the Dow is up by about three or four-tenths of a percent, but the S&P and the NASDAQ are down. In fact, the S&P is down for a fifth straight day. The NASDAQ is down for the fourth time out of the last five sessions. The Dow actually cutting some of its earlier losses. At one point, the Dow was down by about 207 points. That was at the low, but now you can see it's in positive territory, up by about 121 points. Again, that comes after things really reverse course for Boeing. Early in the in the trading session, you saw Boeing shares under pressure. They've pulled back out of it, and that in turn has pulled the Dow up. Let's check out some of the sectors we've been watching today. Energy, financials, and industrials are your leaders today. Utilities and information technology are the biggest laggards right now. In fact, uh, if you drill down to some of the individual movers this hour, clean energy and EV stocks are lower once again today. Enphase Energy, seeing its biggest declines, uh, it's the biggest loser right now. That stock is the second worst performer in the S&P 500. Also, Tesla, down by about 3% today. You've been watching that, and obviously that stock fluctuates pretty rapidly. Right now, down by 3%. The airline stocks are higher, with American up by double digits. Deutsche Bank upgrading the sector to a buy on an improving outlook. And then shares of Spotify gaining on news that the company is going to be launching in new markets in the next few days to reach more than a billion people around the world. The company also launching a new subscription service. Spotify shares are up by about 4.1%. And we should mention the CFO of Spotify, Spotify is going to be on the closing bell. That's coming up at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Right now, let's get over to Rahel Solomon. She's got a CNBC News update. Rahel, good to see you. 
Hi, Becky. Good to see you as well. And here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Senators Mitt Romney and Susan Collins announcing that they, too, will oppose President Biden's choice to head the White House Office of Management and Budget here at Tandon. Collins says that Tandon has neither the experience nor the temperament for the position. Mayor Garland is prioritizing policing and civil rights during his confirmation hearing to lead the Justice Department. He says that the agency must be politically independent. If I am confirmed as attorney general, it will be the culmination of a career I have dedicated to ensuring that the laws of our country are fairly and faithfully enforced and the rights of all Americans are protected. And watch the news with Shepard Smith to see why Garland says that America does not yet have equal justice. Becky, I'll send it back to you, but also some emotional moments during that hearing, uh, as Carl Quintanilla pointed out on Twitter. Yeah, I know. I've been watching and kind of keeping an eye, and we'll definitely tune into Shep tonight to hear more. Thanks, Ralph. Good to see you. Up next, a bearish sign for Bitcoin. Kohl's is in the crosshairs, and Instacart prepares to take on the grocery stores. All that and much more coming up in today's edition of Rapid Fire. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you caught up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Joining us with their takes are Kate Rooney, Deirdre Bosa, and Courtney Reagan. So, ladies, let's kick this off. First up, Bitcoin is moving lower less than a day after hitting an all-time high of more than $58,000. At this morning's lows, it had been down as much as 17%, briefly breaking below $50,000. At the same time, some new data from Chain Analysis suggests that as Bitcoin grew more popular with Main Street investors, some of the biggest holders, meaning those with more than $50 million worth of Bitcoin in their accounts, were actually trimming their positions. Kate, you've been following this story pretty closely. What's your takeaway as we watch this break out? It's so interesting that bigger group of investors that you mentioned, those holding more than $50 million worth, have really been cited as what's been driving Bitcoin you know, past the $50,000 level. Uh, That data from Chainalysis shows that when it hit that benchmark 50,000 level, they started trimming back their holdings. So whether they're more cautious, just wanted to take some profits, that group in particular scaled back. Meanwhile, retail investors, who we think of as sort of the 2017-2018 cohort of Bitcoin investors, have sort of ramped up. And you've seen the uh, exchanges see a lot of volume from those smaller individual buyers So interesting changing dynamic there. And you had, of course, Elon Musk tweeting about uh, Bitcoin being too high at a trillion dollar market cap. So a couple different interesting dynamics. But it seems like those bigger investors are at least sort of scaling back for now. Uh, Deidre, what do you think of this as as we kind of play through and watch this from where you stand on things, from what you're hearing with with what's going on with this? I I don't want to say, you know, smart money is deciding to sell on this. But when you see people being opportunistic, people who have been in it for a long time, that's sometimes what you might think. Right. And in another sense, right, this is a natural backing off a little bit after the incredible run that it's been on. But anything we say here is so difficult to put into context because an analyst at JP Morgan said the value of Bitcoin can be anywhere between $11,000, the cost to mine it, or what, $146,000, which would give it the market cap of gold. So it really just depends on 
what those institutional investors and retail investors want it to be worth, how much value they place into it. It was so interesting, Becky, hearing Ken Griffin on Squawk Box last Friday saying that he really doesn't think about cryptocurrency. And comments like that, to me, seem uh, they seem kind of crazy because whether you believe it's Bitcoin or the technology behind it, whether that be blockchain or a central bank issue, digital currency, feels like that's where the momentum is and where we have to separate sort of the up and down daily price of Bitcoin and focus on its long term value. Yeah, you know, Court, we have seen places like Tesla saying that they'll start accepting it at one point, maybe accepting it for the price of their cars. Uh, you've seen places like Miami saying that maybe if you want to get paid as an employee of the city, you could eventually get paid in Bitcoin. But really, if you're looking at the broad group of retailers that you focus on, they're not looking at that just yet. It's such a good point, Becky. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago when we started to see this run up happening again. And I thought, is Bitcoin really going to take off if you can't truly use it every day or take off as a currency, I should say, because there's an argument about what it is, right? A commodity. Um, is it a currency, a separate kind of asset class altogether? But unless you can use it at the grocery store or at the drug store, there's just going to be a certain group of people that are no longer interested in this. And I think that that was a really good point you were making previously with Deirdre when we always think about the smart money and watching what was the so-called smart money does. And look, it's had a nice run up. So is there anything wrong with taking some profits off the table here, even if you miss potentially a further run up, at least you lock in the gains you had, because we all know how volatile something like Bitcoin can be. Yeah, although, you know, Kate, you've been watching this for quite a while, too. And I, I would hesitate to say that it's not possible that it goes quite a bit higher from here. I think Courtney makes a great point about the volatility. Um, you know, if you're a long term holder, they say if you just sort of step back and didn't watch the day to day moves, the year to date gains are unbelievable. It was almost over the weekend. It had almost doubled. So a lot of there are a lot of bullish folks. I know you've had on your own show. We've talked about Bill Miller, Stan Druckenmiller getting in. That seemed to have driven a lot of the price action. But in terms of the payment, I always think back to the, the Bitcoin pizza, which got a lot of uh, a lot of press around the time that it <laughs> hit 20,000. They said that pizza is now worth a billion dollars or however much. So if you think about you know, if you bought, a, a, say, a dress with Bitcoin, you might look back if Bitcoin were to double from here and say, oh, my God, I should have just used cash. I can't believe I spent my Bitcoin on something I could have bought with fiat currency. So I'm I think the, the use yeah, case of actual uh, payments with Bitcoin, a <laughs> little hesitant on that side. Yeah, that, that Bitcoin pizza, for, for those who don't are familiar with it, it was something like 10,000 Bitcoins that he paid on to buy the pizza just to prove that you could use it for a currency. That was an expensive proposition, and I hope it tasted good going down. <laughs> anyway, topic number two, a group of activist investors with about a 10 percent stake in Kohl's are nominating nine directors to the company's 12-person board in an effort to try and drive the stock price higher through a sale leaseback program. Coal shares are, in fact, moving higher today. In fact, when I looked at it earlier, it was up by about 10 percent. It's right now up by just over 8 percent. Here's what one of the activist investors had to say on the halftime report in the last hour. It's really about their inability to execute the initiatives that they set for themselves. Uh, it's also about the lack of expertise in the boardroom. You know, you talked about nine might be a lot of directors. They don't have one single retail CEO on their board. It's really amazing to think that um, a company would be able to succeed with that kind of board with no retail expertise in the boardroom. 
Coles issued a strong statement shortly ahead of that interview saying, quote, we reject the investor group's attempt to seize control of our board and disrupt our momentum, especially considering that we are well underway in implementing a strong growth strategy and accelerating our performance. And we have refreshed half of our board with six new independent directors since 2016. Uh, Courtney, you're the expert here. What do you think? You know, I think this is a a very interesting target, especially for this group of activist investors. They've gone after retailers before, but retailers that were considerably smaller and those that were in much more of a clear decline than Kohl's. I understand some of their points that if you look over the decade, the stock performance has really not gone anywhere. But since October 2020, when they laid out their latest strategy, the stock price has run up about 150% or so. And when they're talking about nominating uh, new directors to the board, really an entire slate with nine people, um, that is an interesting thought. And of course, that would really be turning the guts of that board inside out. I know Jonathan Duskin's comment about not having a single retail CEO on the board um, kind of made me look into other retailers. And actually, Walmart doesn't have another uh, CEO, retail CEO on the board or former CEO. Target doesn't either, unless you count uh, Safeway, which, of course, is a grocer. And they do have a former CEO of Safeway on Target's board. So I don't know that you can't be a successful retailer without having a uh, former or current retail CEO on your board. And, you know, JCPenney put Steve Sadoff, former CEO of Saks, on its board. That didn't really change its fate. On the flip side, um, Maselum has been successful in getting board members onto big lots. They got three new board members named there, including one of the partners at Maselum. So uh, we'll see here. I think it's an interesting target. There's a lot more we could chat about on this one. Hey, Court, it's probably not all that interesting, uh, not all that unusual. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say one of the pieces that the activist investors are looking at is its partnership with Amazon. And when the new CEO came in in 2018, she was sort of praised for new ideas and taking chances. And one of those was that partnership with Amazon. So basically a customer could return Amazon items at Kohl's stores. And that was supposed to drive traffic. And it was so interesting what he said. He said he's skeptical of how much incremental traffic and at what cost We'd love if they could disclose profitability. And that says a lot about the Amazon strategy, too. and makes you wonder what's Kohl's getting out of it and what is Amazon getting out of it? And is it really that straightforward, driving traffic into the stores or are customers going in and saying, hey, it'd be a lot easier to get that item on Amazon, walk out, not buy it and go online to buy it. So I think it was interesting that they raised questions about something that was so sort of revolutionary at the time and praised for being you know, a really good thing. Yeah, you know, I, I remember early on, before the pandemic. Go ahead, Court. Oh, sorry, Becky. I was just going to say, Coles has, has really only said about that Amazon partnership that, they, that it has driven traffic and that from the data that they've revealed to us, that it does tend to be um, a younger customer and often customers that have not previously shopped at Coles. But other than that, they are vague on the details to Jonathan Duskin's point about the profitability and about the cost of that. But they talk about it as if it has been an incremental positive without giving any real numbered details. 
Yeah, I, I remember the numbers were pretty strong when it first started, and then we got in, interrupted by the pandemic. So who knows how that cut into the yeah. strategy and, and, and where things are. But I was going to say, it's not all that unusual to see an activist investor being smart and opportunistic and maybe jumping in where we've already seen some progress that's been made. And you can count up some easy wins then if the stock actually does pay off after that. Anyway, let's switch topics. Yeah, Finally, we point. want to get to Instacart. It's reportedly exploring the use of robotic warehouses, according to the Financial Times. The company has reportedly been researching ways to automate the grocery picking process for almost a year now and initially wanted to open as many as 50 warehouses in the United States in about a year. However, Instacart has only previously denied claims that it may one day attempt to create its own grocery store. All of this comes as the delivery company is headed for an IPO in the next few months. So should grocers be worried? And we'll start things off with you, Dee. <laughs> well, yes, grocers should be very worried because over the last few years and especially over the pandemic, they have just handed over extremely, extremely valuable information about their shoppers, what they like to buy, kind of even even just what they like to order, even advertising information to Instacart. So if Instacart were to go and create its own brand of grocers, that could be very dangerous to its existing partners. However, uh, Becky, and you mentioned this, that Instacart has repeatedly denied. I mean, its CEO, Arpur Vameta, told us, you know, just over a month ago that they, he told us in no uncertain terms, they will not compete with their partners. Does that mean they never will? I mean, we're not sure. In the meantime, grocers are going to continue to hand over that important data because Instacart has been such a lifeline in many ways. But, you know, we've talked about this as well. Some of the fees and commissions can get high. Will grocers want to pay that forever? Will Instacart eventually want to do this on their own with everything that they do have? But what the company would say is that they are focused on helping those partnerships and they are growing a very large business doing so in the enterprise and the advertising space on the back of those grocers. So they don't necessarily need to start their own line of grocery stores. I think that they, their business is booming without that and will continue to do so. Courtney, it's a tough business, the traditional grocery store business, not very big margins. I was exactly going to bring up that point. Those margins are razor thin. And for so many years in the United States, before the pandemic, online grocery was such a tiny percent of the total grocery market for a number of reasons. It's really expensive to execute for the grocer itself. They have to have the refrigerated trucks. They have to line up the delivery times when you can be there to accept it. And a lot of customers don't wanna pay for it or hadn't traditionally wanted to pay for it before the pandemic. And I had, I had asked a number of times before many different food, food grocers, why don't you just buy Instacart? And they sort of said, we don't want to buy them. It's an expensive proposition. It's better if they do it, we're not gonna make a profit doing this. Right. Hey, Kate, I want to give you the last quick word. We're about out of time, but you get last word. You wonder what that does to existing relationships. This is an imperfect comparison, but if you think about Amazon trying to partner with retailers, they might say, wait a minute, you've got your own grocery stores. That might leave some room for another third party, a Shopify, for example, of the grocery market to come in and maybe make some room for some other competitors. Kate, Deirdre, Courtney, great to see all of you guys. It's been really nice. We'll do this girl chat again sometime soon, okay? Perfect. Thanks, Becky. <laughs> Bye, guys. 
When we come back, mortgage rates are on the rise after sitting at record lows for months, poised to make already pricing homes even pricier. We're going to get a housing health check ahead of the all-important spring season. That's coming up next. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We've got a heads up for potential home buyers. Rates are on the rise, and it looks like they could be staying that way for the important spring season. Diana Olick joins us right now with that story. And Diana, that's the big question. Is there sticking power behind these gains? Yeah, they're definitely in that upward trajectory now, Becky. Mortgage rates rose more last week than during any other week in nearly a year, and it's all thanks to that recent spike in the 10-year Treasury yield, which rates loosely follow. So after hitting a low of 2.75% at the end of January, the average rate on the 30-year fix just hit 3.06% this morning. That's according to Mortgage News Daily. So let's say you wanted to take out a $300,000 mortgage at the end of January, but you waited until today. Well, you're now looking at over $50 more in your monthly payment. And that may not sound like a lot, but the bigger the mortgage, the bigger the difference. And home prices are accelerating at the fastest pace in several years. Prices were up over 9% in December year over year, according to CoreLogic. Compare that to just 4% annual price gains two years ago. And prices have been juiced not just by high demand and low supply, but also by these record low mortgage rates. The lower the rate, the more home you can afford. So for the spring market, affordability will likely weaken even further. Sales could take a hit and prices, Becky, will likely follow on the downside. Diana, thanks. Good to see you. Raising uh, rising mortgage rates can introduce a host of issues into the red hot housing market. But our next guest argues that there is a slim silver lining in this rate environment. It could help cool off an overheated market. Let's bring in Andy Walden, the director of market research for Black Knight. And Andy, good luck with this one. It's like you're going to try and sell people (laughs) on broken glass. Explain to me why higher mortgage rates are actually a good thing. That's right. And it sounds counterintuitive, but for all of the reasons that Diana just mentioned, the housing market is extremely hot right now. We've been coming off an environment where three-quarters of a million homeowners chose not to sell their home last year because of the pandemic, which has caused a a drastic fall in the number of homes for sale out there. We're down 40 to 50 percent from where we were at the same time last year. At the same time, we've we've been having these record low mortgage rates, and so it's created this environment where it's extremely difficult for homeowners to buy a home, and it's caused these very drastic rises in home prices. As Diana mentioned, and according to some of our collateral analytics numbers, home prices have been up. The median sale price has been up 15% year over year in each of the last three months. So introducing this higher interest rate environment, while it does impact homeowners in the amount that they would pay for their home, does reduce some of that bidding war risk and could cool down the housing market, at least to some degree. (laughs) I'm still trying to get my head around it. It's good news. Fewer people are going to want your home. Um, Look, what it does is it it eats into the price that either you're going to get as the seller or it increases the price that you're going to have to pay as the buyer. And that's not a good that's not good news. It means more of that money is not going to the people actually involved in the transaction directly. Well, when you look at what's going on out there in the housing market right now, you have a lot of homeowners or or potential home buyers that simply can't buy a home that want to right now because of some of the bidding war activity. And what you like to see when interest rates are low is homeowners putting that money back in their pocket. 
that's not what tends to happen. What you tend to do is pay more money for the exact same home. So when you look for, at the long-term health of the housing market, I think reducing the rate at which home prices are going up, right, that, that 15% home price growth simply is not sustainable. So pulling that down to a more no, normal level, reducing the bidding war activity, even though you're, uh, you're, you're maybe increasing your monthly payment a little bit, you're reducing the, the number of bids that you're competing against in the market, which could be a benefit to you. You're still not selling me on the broken glass theory, but explain <laughs> to me, what is, the, what is the rule of thumb for every, let's say, quarter percentage point that, that uh, mortgage rates go up? What does that do in terms of the prices people are willing to pay on the house? Sure. When interest rates move by 1% in either direction, it impacts your buying power by about 12%, right? So as interest rates, and if we look over the last two years, interest rates are down about uh, two percentage points. So your buying power is up almost 25% from where it was two years ago. The roughly quarter of a point movement that we've seen so far here this year is equivalent to roughly a 3% reduction in your buying power. So not a massive move from what we've seen in interest rates so far, but again, a, a slight cooling effect on the buying power that homeowners have out there in the market right now. Andy, thank you. You're a good sport. It's good to see you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks. All right, let's get over to Julia Borston. She's got more on Spotify's big announcements today. Julia, what can you tell us? Well, Becky, Spotify shares are up about 4.5% after the company announced expansions of many different parts of its business this morning. Now, Spotify's app will roll out to 85 new markets to reach an additional 1 billion people. The company announced a range of new podcast deals, including one with President Obama and Bruce Springsteen, as well as new scripted shows, including some from DC Comics. Spotify is also expanding its ad network to be more like Facebook's, with self-serve access and the ability to target Spotify users off the platform. Spotify is also launching a new hi-fi subscription option for which it'll be able to charge more. Becky? Julia, thanks. Great to see you. That stock up by about four and a half percent. Still ahead, creativity is necessary to make art, but now the art world is getting creative when it comes to financing solutions. We've got that story and whether buyers should beware next. Welcome back, everybody. From art to sneakers and handbags, lenders are coming up with creative collateral for wealthy people to use to raise cash. Robert Frank joins us right now with that story. And Robert, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Becky. Now, loans against art have soared to over $20 billion, with collectors pulling records amounts of cash from the art on their walls during the pandemic. Bank of America's art lending business up over 30% last year. Goldman Sachs, JPM also seeing similar gains. Now, some of the cash is going to buy other art, but it's also going into financial markets, real estate, and private companies. But the big change right now and the big risk is the business of packaging these art loans and then selling them to investors. Art lender Athena has an art fund backed by works of Basquiat, Warhol, and others that has sold over $40 million in loans to investors through its parent platform, Yield Street. Sotheby's just launched a partnership with Alex Klaben. He is the former hedge fund manager to make payments and borrowing easier for clients and possibly offer loans to investors. Now, Sotheby's says it understands. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 